it's really strange that this is the second year in a row that you're here for the show coming out of Hot Docs, which is like... Oh, really? Yeah, I, I, I hadn't thought about it until I was doing notes for this show. Okay. But last year when we did the Ex Machina episode... It didn't feel like that long. It doesn't, first of all. And, like, even Ex Machina actually feels a lot longer ago than it is. Yeah. Right? Like, I keep thinking about that as a movie from, like, last February or something like that. But it was really April, May. Well, the difference between when that came out and where we're at now is that, like, this year, for like, the first half of the year, has been stacked. Yeah. Like, not just from, like, hot dogs and, and everything and we're coming out of cans about stuff that's coming out, but... Just like the regular, like drip by drip releases, whether both under the radar and kind of a bigger deal ones, and we're really, really lucky that we don't have had to sort of dig under the the only thing the cushions too much to find find some change. Yeah, the only thing that's weird is that this year they're coming in clumps, right? Like right. you'll go a month with nothing, and then five things all in a week, and mm-hmm. then three weeks with nothing, and four things all in a week. It's it's really strange. Yeah, on that I mean, this is a year where it took me like almost a month to finally get to see Everybody Wants Some. Which is a movie from one of my favorite directors, period. Yeah. Like, and I didn't really feel like I like it was itching at me for about a week and a half towards the end. <laughs> but I, I didn't feel like 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 there was no options out there. Like, oh, there's only one good movie out there, and I'm not seeing it. Like, it didn't, you know, it wasn't punishment because there was something else that yeah yeah tied you over. So. Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. We are back after a small layoff for Hot Docs again. Uh, if you listened to this show last year, you would have heard me say the same thing with the same guest. You're listening to episode 158 of the Matinee Cast. It's the movie-loving podcast of the movie-loving website, thematinee.ca. Your home for cinematic passion and perspective. Uh, my guest today, a longtime friend of the show, and... Uh, kind of got under my craw a little over a year ago because he came up with a podcast idea that was so great that I was really pissed that I hadn't thought of it myself. Um, I have appeared on it in case you uh, in case you are a fan of that show. Uh, you might remember me from the episode where we talked about the Dirty Dancing soundtrack, but the man gets people on to talk about the marriage of movies and music. And seriously, how did I not ever approach that? Um, so, or, or just like get off my ass and do it sooner. Um, but of course he does it really well. He gets, um, great guests on to talk about, uh, not just the movies and the music, but about themselves, um, and, and their lives, uh, and how music and movies play into it. Um, including my wife, actually, if you, in case you wanted to get a little bit more background on the one time lady had her, she got on your show and talked about Days and Confused. That's right. Um, Corey Pierce is here on the show from the Soundtrack of Your Life podcast on Bro3.com. How are you, man? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for the hype there, even though I've been lazy. No, no. It, it's it's great. You know, like they, they come every once in a while, and then yeah. you disappear into the night. It's, it's, it's like, you know, you get them when you least expect them, and, yeah. then, and then you get a taste, and then off they go again. Yeah. On episode 158 of this show, we will be discussing the nice guys. We'll be turning the record over to play the other side. But first, we need to learn more about Corey Pierce. This is Know Your Enemy. On episode 136, where we discussed Ex Machina, we learned the first film Mr. Pierce had seen in a theater was Pinocchio, the animated film from Walt Disney. The last film he'd watched at the time was the animated G.I. Joe movie, 
The worst movie he's ever seen is Titanic the Animated Film, the unseen classic or essential with Seven Samurai. Any luck there? I haven't gotten to it yet. All right. <laughs> it was only a year ago, so it's not yeah. so bad. And the film he wished he'd made for various reasons was Freddy Got Fingered. So it's time for round two. Corey, what is the film you like that nobody else does? Um, well, both of the answers that are going to be coming for some of these slides. I think people have kind of come around to it over okay. the years, but I am a devotee of Speed Racer. People have come around on that one, and it's it's been a funny thing to witness because that whole arc has played out since I've been writing uh, yeah. the matinee and its predecessor. Because um, it dropped, literally dropped. It was, it was like, around it was this a time bomb. of year. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was a huge miss when it when it came out. It seemed Very like expensive. it was going to be the kind of thing that could relight the um, that could tap into like some unknown property, not yeah. even unknown, but like niche property, yeah. and turn it into something huge. And it just that just didn't materialize yeah. well, at the time. At that time that it came out, even uh, my ex and I, we were. We would we would kind of see certain things in theaters as punishment to ourselves. Like <laughs> we saw like the or like the Left Behind, like the Christian movie in theaters. Oh God! And and some other things that we regret, and we would have like a New Year's Eve ritual. We'd regret like the worst two movies that were reviewed of that year. So like let's ring in the New Year by watching Pluto Nash. Oh my so, Lord! So you know like um, mistakes were made. Uh, <laughs> but, but right, so right from the jump, you yeah. dug Speed Racer. Oh yeah, yeah. Because like, I just remember leaving the theater and I just like had that kind of like pause where it's almost like I had to apologize to her. I'm like, I kind of like, I kind of liked it. Like you're just trying to like ease into sort of admitting what you felt about it. And then I just immediately became one of those things where I had to search every form I could find for some sort of validation that I wasn't like a lunatic. W- were you finding a lot of it earlier on? Um, if it, you it know, got drubbed. I'm a I'm a person who's of the of the deep internet, you know. Okay. Like I I know what Rick Rolling was when it was Duck Rolling, you know, like the, that sort of thing we're talking about. So not that I approve of some of the underground internet right abilities, but I, I I've been there, I've lived there. Um, so I knew where to go to find my people, gotcha. and they just happened to sort of preach the word and kind of filter out gradually into the mainstream. And the fact that it was like still a, a big blockbuster with the Wachowskis who were going to be advertising the word Matrix in front of their films for the rest of their life, um, it means that there's always going to be someone out there who finds it in a delete bin for five bucks and realizes it's the perfect Blu-ray demo disc. And uh, and yeah, it just kind of goes from there. And uh, locally, we've got kind of people like Peter Kaplowski who have been kind of preaching the gospel as well um there was a series in toronto called like defending the indefensible back yep. at the old toronto underground and he did a pretty kind of epic uh uh defense of it there came up showed up in full speed racer garb and i made sure to drag kurt uh, and his kids down there to see it in the theater and the print wasn't that great and it's the underground right <laughs> yeah yeah but i think they still like those kids got a real uh, rush out of out of watching it now so that i felt good to sort of be part of that seeing a slow emergence of appreciation for it has it been like do you find the urge to start getting cocky or has it been like yes come on in welcome you're among friends no not really i mean because i've been through this with music and it kind of will go back the other way because like i've always had like a diverse taste in music Mm -hmm. but when i was in high school i was one of the people who really loved corn you know what I mean and but thing is nobody liked corn or tool yeah. and it was after like a couple years after I left school all of a sudden like all the teenagers have got cornrows and you know Adidas pants and I was just like oh too late I missed <laughs> my time but you know like it, if, if anything you know it goes back around the other way and you end up apologizing again later so you right. can only get don't get too cocky kid okay. you know Speed Racer it's yeah. good check it out 
conversely, oh god. Now, keep in mind that this tends to only be about an 80 or 90 minute show. Yeah. But what is the film that everybody else digs that you do not? Um, I thought I was going to come in with one answer to be, to be topical, but okay. I'm going with another, which right. is also topical. Okay. Uh, the one that I'm kind of known for, always kind of going back to the well and just ragging on, is Drive. Okay. Um, I'm with you on that. Yeah. Um, I, I dig it, but it's not. I, I don't dig it nearly as much as most other people. If Nicholas Winding Refn was only like a music video director or only made trailers, we would be on completely oh. different terms. Or commercials? Yeah. 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 But uh, especially in kind of context of watching like a neo, some neo noirs like you've been doing for this show, like it just kind of reinforces like everything that I can't stand about him, where it's just. Like, you know, we all know that he's colorblind, but he to me, he's also kind of personality blind and dialogue Is he literally blind. colorblind? Oh, yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, I didn't know that. I, I picked that up from an Onion article, so if I'm wrong, I'm blaming it on them. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean the AV club. Okay. But, uh, um, I just can't stand um, some movies that have kind of this abstraction of humanity that goes so far into what I call just, like, just staring Okay. And, yeah, yeah. Um, there are some people who know how to do it, like kind of emotionally, and have a kind of a. It's not that I'm against like lack of dialogue or sparseness, you know, because like I like Jerry, like the Van Zandt movie, oh, for man. sake, you know, like I can I can find something that's really kind of out there like that and, and get into it. Um, but in his case, it just comes off so unnatural, like where it's like, um, it just reminds me almost of, of Twilight with like the way that Bella and would just stare at him and you can just be like off screen like a mystery science theater going line yeah line um Refn has always wanted to have it both ways where he's trying to force some sort of kind of blunt message of like he, he thinks that he's got some sort of sense of humanity that he's uncovering when he's doing stuff and only God forgives like going back into the womb and stuff like that but to me he's completely like alien in the bad way where it's like he's not just stepping back and being completely detached he's sticking his toe in somewhere where he doesn't know what he's doing it's funny because I like I remember coming away from drive feeling really cold like I I, I came away from it the saying okay and, and and just that just okay and I didn't understand why after everybody else saw yeah. it everybody like they were losing their shit like there were yeah. people that year that were calling it the best film of the year and I was like wait what did we watch the same movie yeah. it's a cool movie but that's it it's just a cool movie you know yeah. it's got cool cars and cool jackets and and like pretty rooms yeah but like, that's it it's the kind of movie it, where i think i've said this on the show before if i was at a party it's the kind of movie well it's kind of the kind of movie that you can put on the tv and not have that have to worry about the volume on yeah you know <laughs> even though it's known for its soundtrack that's, yeah that's well, be its legacy yeah, yeah like i would rather just like play the sound I, that's yeah. the other thing like i'd rather just play the soundtrack yeah and that's i guess that's that's my question is was it was it on its own or is it because other people have trumpeted it up um, so much well, like, which which is part of i never question, saw the really. pusher trilogy and i don't know if i'll even go back there at this point but this, i had seen bronson and I, I i still love bronson okay the thing is bronson has got that very sort of like, like kubrick like he's very deliberately wanted to make a new clockwork orange but thing is with bronson he had um tom hardy with like the most charismatic performance of his career in my opinion which is still which um, is saying something which and is very kind of over the top and theatrical while also being kind of very blunt and animalistic and kind of cruel and bloody so like everything that sort of fits into what Ruffin likes is there and you've got someone 
like it's not like Gosling can't act obviously but like Tom Hardy's not gonna sit back and just stare at people yeah. you know like he's gonna take a role like that and just go like apeshit he's not going to pose like a model so when I see Neon Demon come out and, and I saw like oh my god he cast Keanu Reeves and it's with the fashion industry this is going to suck this is gonna hurt you know yeah. like it's almost like he's writing in like reasons just and just, it just put it just you know what when it when it shows up either yeah. on demand or netflix or whatever just put it on in the background do some work yeah and just yeah. watch it for visuals yeah. just leave yeah. it muted but put uh, on some better music yeah but um yeah yeah but, uh, it makes me feel glad that i i married someone who when we watched only god forgives she was just screaming and yelling <laughs> she likes everything but the only movie she really hates is only, only god, god forgives, forgives. awesome uh what was the last film to make you cry um i think i think the answer to go with is the little prince the recent one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I feel so damn sad that that movie came and went and yeah. didn't make a dent. It, it's like the Iron Giant of this generation. I like, think so. Have to be I, yeah. I, I really yeah. hope that it's the kind of movie that gets a lot of attention yeah. later. It got picked up by Netflix, so I don't know how that how the hell that's going to work. But. Um, it'll because like, it'll show up. It'll be like they're. It'll be in in a in a line with. Um, Beast of No Nation, which actually that might be better for it because I kind of feel like parents are going to throw it on for their kids because yeah. it's going to show up on the splash page. Yeah. That's the one thing I hate about Netflix is they try to push their stuff. Yeah. You know, it's like, no, I, section yeah, it's like, no, I don't want to watch Bloodlines today. Let me, <laughs> let me get to my shit. Um, uh, at the same time, though, it's like, it's, it's one of the best 3D movies that has been in a while, too. Like the way that the paper kind of paper looking stop motion world is in that. Uh, I think I saw it in 2D. Okay. Um, but uh, there's a scene I, I can't spoil it because it will ruin the emotional impact but there's a scene later in the film involving the Rose yes and uh, the Dawn yeah and uh, just kind of the very kind of a very simplistic but profound way of kind of discussing about you know that you know it's you know it's going to be okay yeah you know and you know that there's loss but you're going to be okay and after the year I've kind of had and everything like that I it wasn't Deliberate. It was abstract enough, mm-hmm. but still like specific enough <laughs> to just sort of reach into me and just be like, "Oh God, here it comes," <laughs> you know. And, and I couldn't stop it, and it was kind of uncontrollable. And to me, it's still the best movie of the year. It's definitely it's definitely one of them. Like I, I, it's it's been um everything I've seen this year has been kind of close, but not quite. But I think like for me, uh, like that is definitely. Uh, one of the top ones is like that in Sing Street, and right now everything else is just yeah. stacked in behind. Yeah. Um, are, like, do you generally are you a crier at films or? Uh, I can be. Okay. There are other ones where I've been kind of informed well in advance to say like, oh, it's like if, if they prepare me for it, it's probably less likely to work. Oh, okay. <laughs> but uh, I, I can be on guard depending on on what it is. But uh, and if anything, it's almost like. It's a bigger disappointment sometimes if something is supposed to make you cry and, and it doesn't. doesn't. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I got that. I, I was I, the, one of the books I just finished. Somebody was like, "Did you cry at the end?" Nope. No. Was I supposed to? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Um, although for me with books, it's harder. Um, in the movie of your life, who plays you? Uh, um, I like the play the doppelganger gang, gang with some <laughs> things. I mean, it's I, an I, audio I, medium, so it's not yeah, quite yeah, going to yeah. go as well. Uh, so I might have to drop some like pictures locally, to the show notes. Uh, it, it, like with the nice guys, obviously we pointed out many times how much Kurt is growing into Russell Crowe. Yeah, um, it's it's insane. Yes. Um, if you look at older pictures of Vincent D'Onofrio, 
there were ones where he looks like me. Okay. Um, but the one that has kind of looked like me off and on, sometimes kind of like, oh, God, I hate that I look like him. And other times, like, yeah, I, I, I don't mind that I look like him, is um, Eldon Henson from Daredevil and the Mighty Ducks. So <laughs> when there are scenes in Daredevil... Oh, no, there's no scenes between Foggy Nelson and... Kingpin, so you're okay because I was right. gonna say if those two characters yeah, were in the same yeah, scene, yeah, would yeah. your mind just be blowing? Maybe, like... maybe. And and, and and he's coming to Fan Expo in the fall, so I'm gonna and I've got a, a Nel- I've got a Nelson and Murdoch mug. Okay. So I'm gonna have to maybe cosplay it up and pay to meet things. I don't even love Daredevil, but I have to meet meet Eldon Henson now. I think um, so. Uh, there were times where like it's just like oh man, you know he's got too much jowl. I don't wanna. Yeah, you like don't want to cop to that. Yeah. Um, but there are other times where like he's doing interviews, got like kind of his beard going and. And he's got he's a kind of he's a charismatic guy. I don't know if he's a great actor, but he's a kind of he kind of fits what I kind of see in myself nice. in general. So I'm kind of don't mind that I, I've I've, I've accepted he's, that Eldon Henson and I have a connection. He, he's got some great scenes on Daredevil, so yeah. there's certainly worse people to, to choose to, to um, play you. He's more interesting than Matt Murdock. Oh yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's always you know the the one who's always watching it happen is usually more interesting than the one that's happening yeah and he's the moral compass and last but not least what film are you watching next um i'm not sure if it's going to happen as soon as i wanted to <laughs> but um i am trying to watch the uh, bbc miniseries slash movie of diary of anne frank from 2009 i do not know this okay, okay. uh i didn't either until the um, queen video had their uh sell off sell off and i came across it and then i just checked double check you know the various rating aggregators who all say that's fantastic um because you know there's obviously that one from like the 50s or whatever and uh, i haven't seen that either but mm-hmm. um after i read fault in our stars i for some reason it spurred me to like like you know what i never read the diary of anne frank because there's like a scene in fault in our star that's meant to sort of connect oh yeah right um and so uh as an adult i read the diary of anne frank and, and was kind of Surprised to find myself kind of blown away by the amount of personality and intelligence for, for something that young. And it just kind of reminded me, maybe in a selfish way, that um, there's not, like, in North America, other than maybe the 9-11 memorial, like, there's not, like, a, a place that just very kind of symbolic of kind of, like, atonement mm-hmm. or uh, of um, kind of, like, the, like a, a horrible mistake on... To, to too many lies yeah and like Anne Frank and her family are just so many people but that house is to me like a very powerful symbolic place and I I, I, could, I don't think I could ever go to Auschwitz and I, I know people who have and because you know it's like their birthright yeah but um so the Anne Frank house is probably it's the mo- it's it's a, it's basically like as far down that road as you want yeah. as you can go yeah emotionally yeah, yeah. um so, so, so um, and we will be going there Okay. Uh, we, within the who's, next month, who's is anybody of note in the miniseries? Um, I don't think so. Hmm. Um, so I can't even tell you anything about it. I'm just very um, excited about it. Yeah. But it's a matter of kind of making the time. Cool. Well, you'll have to let me know how that goes uh, for sure because now you've got me very curious. So we're gonna move on to this episode's new slang, and the new slang for episode 158 is the nice guy. The Nice Guys is directed by Shane Black. It's written by Black in, in conjunction with Anthony Bagarozzi. It stars Russell Crowe, 
Ryan Gosling, Anguri Rice, Matt Bomer, and Kim Basinger, along with a series of other character actors. We go back to Los Angeles in the 1970s, and our story begins with a porn star named Misty Mountains, who turns up dead in an apparent suicide by reckless driving. At the same time, a girl named Amelia Kuttner is missing, which may or may not have something to do with her social crusades. Investigations of both cases soon overlap and bring together private investigators Jackson Healy and Holland Marsh. That's Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling, respectively. Marsh even has his daughter Holly in on the action. That's Anguri Rice. Both out of necessity and out of emotional dependency. But as the case unfolds and the nature of just how violent and corrupt the case appears to be, our heroes need to dig a little deeper, figure out how to work together, and shake their individual demons in the hopes of getting to the truth. The past 10 years or so has really seen a resurgence in buddy cop movies, a genre once defined by pairings like Gibson and Glover, Murphy and Nolte, and Smith and Lawrence, has seen their ranks joined by Peg and Frost, Kilmer and Downey, Bullock and McCarthy, and Wahlberg and Farrell. So pop quiz, hotshot. What do you think is behind the resurgence of the buddy cop movie? Um, I think it's just a matter of that comic personalities or even uh, just don't can't exist in the vacuum sometimes anymore um that they need somebody else to play off of i mean and <laughs> i'm gonna even take it back to something completely different which would be like spade and farley <laughs> sure okay <laughs> so, yeah, so yeah. think of how well that they really did on their own outside of well their movie together and the other mediocre movie they did <laughs> but um uh when i when i think of gosling and um crow in this movie i mean one of the first things I had early in the movie I, I was I thought about like the alternate casting because there were scenes where I thought I was like wow that that's like, such a Nicolas Cage kind of scene when I thought of uh, Crow talking to Amelia for the first time in the car um, <laughs> so uh, and you can sort of see Rockwell in uh, Gosling's performance a bit as well sure so um, it's more just a matter of uh, let me go completely off the rails with okay. with this sort of description. Uh, a friend of mine recently asked, like, why do people like Fred Armisen? I don't, I don't get it, and stuff like that. And I said, well, you know, like, I can understand why someone doesn't really appreciate him, like, on his own when he's doing one of his long monologue rants on SNL where he's just pretending to read the newspaper. Yeah. But the reason why Portlandia has lasted six seasons and is the most well-reviewed thing that he's done is because he has a chemistry with Kerry Brownstein that where he can be himself and be his true comic voice, but he has, like, this kind of foil that sort of, like balances out and, and can amplify his best sort of instincts where she's completely like fits with him and can play ball with him yeah but and she's not like he's not overshadowing her at all yeah but they just kind of complement each other in a way that can't be done anywhere else and I think well not all like a lot of the com combinations you mentioned as far as buddy movies go those people are perfectly fine on their own or fine with other people but the reason that those films stood out is because they just got that chemistry right and like these people aren't making individual performances they're comedically dancing yeah, with each other with each other it's yeah. the, I, I guess the thing that's funny for me is that you know when you take pairings and turn and specifically make them cops and, and just because we seem to go a long time without it. it felt like we went through this weird little 10 or 15 year dip yeah. Where either they weren't really making them, or the ones they did make were just crap. Like I'm thinking of stuff like Hollywood Homicide. Yeah, you know, w w like really didn't latch or um, Showtime, that kind of thing. It, like they, they didn't really seem to to stick. And then 
all of a sudden kind of starting from Hot Fuzz. And maybe because Hot Fuzz was this play on all of those old ones. Yeah. They kind of Hollywood sort of seemed to get the formula right again. And it also might be that some of those ones that I mentioned had talent with some brains behind them. Like, okay, so we have another one that's uh, Shane Black in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. We've got um, Paul Fegg with The Heat. We've got Adam McKay with, um, what was the one with Wahlberg and Farrell? The other guys. Yeah, the other guys. Yeah. You know, so it, it feels like if you take any genre and hand it to somebody clever, yeah. they can deliver something that can work within that genre. So I maybe think that's that James it. Gunn needs to do one of these. Absolutely. Oh, but, yeah, totally. I would but, love to um, see that. I think the other thing, though, with that, when it comes down to these kind of cop movies is that uh, when you hand someone kind of the authority of being kind of a police officer mm -hmm. or a detective or whatever, you kind of see how... Like something more to the core of how they accept responsibility, how they ex expect authority, kind of like the kind of the core of their character, and uh, that kind of comes out especially in the nice guys when it comes to about you know decisions whether or not to kill, yeah, or uh, the you know the alcoholism and you know the th the things you're willing to sort of compromise while you're on the job, yeah. So um, and that can really sort of I think help actors really kind of tap more into their characters than if they're just playing kind of you know the generic cop that appears in so many other. Right. Statham-esque kind right. of action movies. So, so. We, are, we actually haven't talked about this. So I, I, I kind of take it you dug this movie? Oh, I, I loved it. Okay, um, well, what would you, you, you think on the whole? Uh, I didn't know what to expect going on. I saw, I saw the trailers like maybe too many times. This has been yeah. one of those trailers that is all over the death. place. Yeah. Um, I expected that it was going to be good and just, you know, it was going to be good. And uh, I actually think that as far as Shane Black's catalog goes, it might be his masterpiece. It's maybe the Shane Blackiest of all has done and I th he's just sort of he's only had a few chances to direct yeah but you can sense like a very much more a lot more confidence mm -hmm. and uh, that he really has uh, you can tell that this screenwriting like went through as many different iterations as it was before he was happy this is not a case where someone is just uh, taking a straight script and you know compromising it to whatever the, their own vision and then it just kind of gets diluted and there's also not really kind of like we're used to like the action comedies of today being your Ant-Man's and you know uh, other kind of Marvel movies right right so when you see something like this uh, and really I haven't seen much like it since well obviously Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and like Matchstick Man maybe yeah um, where uh, you know they're willing to have like some dark things happen some unexpected things happen like it's an adult movie that has kind of it's rated R. Yeah, like, that's a, I, I didn't realize stuff. that until yeah. today. It's, it's it has actually some juvenile R. stuff going on. I don't mean like Seth Rogen juvenile, but I mean no. like yeah, like the, like uh, it just like he has an actual voice, and it's not a very very specific voice. Yeah. I say, and and like because he's got like you can just pinpoint so many different things. Like, there's a thing that I find with music and stuff sometimes where you can list like a dozen different things that it's tapping into like a dozen different influences like it sounds like this 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 mm -hmm. and this but there's only so many you can get to before it becomes its own own thing, thing yeah and i think shane black is, is is one of those people where he's like a mike patton he's just like oh mike patton you know he's got a little bit of rap and he's got you know metal and he's got you know opera and old italian mm -hmm. uh, standards and stuff and and yeah shane black has got his neo-noir stuff he's got his kind of uh schlocky kind of influences He's got some of the same sort of kind of Scorsese-ish 70s, you know, like fixation. Um, and yeah, it, it just all kind of comes together and works because he just has his own sensibility and things that he likes that he adds on top of it. Uh, where whether it's like 
the Looney Tunes nature of kind of things kind of falling around each other. Uh, there's the I think it's funny that uh, the way that he inserted the little uh, the the younger daughter mm-hmm. is that the movie essentially turns into an Inspector Gadget for a stretch. Basically, yeah. <laughs> Just in case people don't know, um, Shane Black is a writer director, um, and he's kind of become very known for this kind of movie because he wrote uh, most famously the Lethal Weapon movies. He also wrote The Long Kiss Goodnight, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. He wrote and directed Iron Man three. Uh, so he's very much made his bones on this kind of pulpy, uh, literally buddy cop kind of kind of movie. Um, you know, the strange thing for me is I like this movie a lot. This is one of certainly one of the best movies I've seen this year. Uh, in ter- like, first of all, just in terms of how much fun yeah. I had watching it, how engaged I was with it, um, how handsome it is, uh, and like the the performances, the timing, everything. We're gonna get into some of that specifics. But I can't. I'm, I'm, I haven't written about it yet. We're sitting here recording. It's like almost noon on Sunday morning, yeah. and I haven't written one word about it. It's not the easiest movie to talk about because no, it's not we, really about much. No, exactly. Yeah. The, the, you know, I'm having a hard time extrapolating any themes or anything. It took me. Usually, a great film takes me out of the theater. Yeah. Right. Like the, some of the best films have had me thinking about so many other things while they're going, yeah. and that's a good thing, right? It, you would think it would be the opposite that it would just keep you locked. Yeah. in that dark room but no 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 most of the best movies they send me all sorts of other places this didn't yeah. this actually kept me very much locked yeah. in that dark room so it's kind of hard for me to articulate what it was I loved about this yeah. movie besides it's, it's so cool it's very much like about the engine it's like trying to like explain why a joke works to somebody yeah you know it's not really that interesting to to, to read <laughs> yeah yeah um, and, and, and it's you know it, the crazy thing about it is that we're going to get into some of the nuts and bolts in a second and that's it like it's nuts and bolts are so fascinating and so interesting to watch yeah. how they all work together that maybe that's it our friend Kurt likes to use the metaphor of a puzzle box and that's kind of what I think about this movie which seems absurd yeah. because it's such a straight down the middle movie but the way all of its pieces work in such harmony yeah. is just beautiful well it's extremely kind of intricate in plot I mean oh, yeah. it's extremely dense where it's like you can't go to the bathroom because you're gonna have you're to gonna ask miss something. questions yeah. You know, oh, yeah. and get back and that's um, but and it all makes sense elegant, <laughs> like, and elegantly so yeah. too right it's not it doesn't kind of shoehorn in yeah. a weird drug plot or a weird you know like everything follows the pattern perfectly and yeah, you, like you said if you if you're watching this at home and you look down at your phone yeah. you might very well be screwed yeah right Weirdly, it's one of those movies where it's like almost is like trying to prevent you, even though it's a funny movie. It's almost almost trying to prevent you from laughing because it doesn't want <laughs> you to miss something. Yeah, and you might even sort of guard yourself. Like this is like very much like a rewatch movie. Yeah, um, because um, knowing what happens isn't going to actually like kind of spoil the actual experience of watching it. It's not so plot and exposition heavy that it just sort of just dies. Yeah, it's because there's so much little, there's so many like little things that you won't laugh at the first time or yeah. you might even think is like oh the timing on that is off or something like that but it's, but it's because you're so on guard with just following along yeah. with the plot and it's only really in the times where things or like lets a little bit loose and lets the comedy come full force that you kind of feel relaxed enough to sort of kind of laugh and enjoy it on those terms like it's going to be very rewarding on rewatch because so many of Shane Black's little ticks and intentional sort of uh, off-timed kind of jokes and reactions or you know uh, the personality ticks like uh, Ryan Gosling's obsession with comparing everything to Hitler yeah. are just going to get funnier. <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. like you're, you're once you've become completely familiar with 
this leads to this leads to this leads to this that's out of the way yeah you've got that out of the way the mechanic, mechanic works it's a good nice noir story that you, is when you very can, well yeah. done you can relax and let this be kind of a very fun hanging out movie that you can quote yeah. and that is why Kiss Kiss Bang Bang wasn't a hit on release but has a following now I was gonna say like um, I really think this is gonna be a movie that people are gonna come to on demand and on Netflix yeah. and that kind of thing and they're all, like it's gonna be one of those movies that nobody went to see at the time because this is not gonna make a whole lot of money well the theater I saw it was packed oh the, the theater I saw it was, was only like half full but okay. still it's, it's like rated R but it's not gonna make a boatload just because this kind of movie doesn't make a, a, a ton of money but it's gonna have it's this movie's got legs. This one will be one that it may very well inspire a lot of other people. Yeah, it might. I hope so. I'm I'm kind of hoping it does something for Russell Crowe's career because he kind of seems to be. He's it's been a while since he's just been straight out the best part of a movie. Like I think I gotta go all the way back to like 310 to Yuma, and that was eight years ago now. Yeah, right. It's it's been a while for for that kind of thing. Why the one thing I was thinking about when I watched this movie. Why did the 70s look so cool all of a sudden? Neither one of us were alive for it. Or, you know, we were, we were like, or, or not alive enough to really understand what was going on. But it was a dirty time. It was a grimy time. There was so much shit going wrong. But you watch a movie like this, or you watch a movie like Boogie Nights or something like that, and, 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 and it's not even handsome in a Mad Men 60s kind of way, or, or an hour 50s kind of way, right? It's a very, very ugly time style wise like everything that comes out of that era has also a retro like inherent, feel inherent vice as well yeah, yeah inver- that, that was the um, other one i was thinking of inherent vice and this is a movie that actually i, I was thinking about it during because it, it it has so much more accessibility yeah. than inherent vice which i think but is there just, is a connection between the two oh well, there so. is but um, so why why do we watch movies like that and think man i would i'd like to go spend a summer in 77 for some reason um well i don't even know if it's like when you think of like the 77 78 in this movie and you think about the 1980 and everybody wants some yeah, they they both feel like very legit. Yeah, but it's definitely two different places, even though it's the same time period. Um, but they both feel so very lived in. But I think the thing that connects and separates them is that the seventy seven seventy eight that's in um, the Nice Guys is in you know L A and like the hills, mm-hmm. and it makes you realize that most of the time when you watch an L A movie, like you don't really have a sense of L.A., the city. Like, no. Most of the movies that take place in L.A., whatever, it's like Boogie Nights or... No, well, Boogie Nights is New York, New Jersey, isn't no, it? No, it's, it's L.A. LA. Okay, right. No, I was wrong. It's because he's from New Jersey. Yeah. Right, okay. Um, uh, it's like all just neighborhoods and big houses. It's um, And they go into some small neighborhoods in this movie, and they go into some small neighborhoods in you know, L.A. Confidential and other yeah. sort of films. But it's really almost more like... This is a place where people live. They may live laugh lavishly, mm-hmm. but and I don't think about that way when I think of LA. Normally, you normally like I think of LA as being a city, but the LA you see on screen is always just individual houses. Have and you even ever when it comes se- like the bling ring. Or yeah. Have you ever seen LA plays itself? No. It's um, it, it's just a really long ass documentary. I want to say it's like three hours, and it's kind of hard to track down because. They never fully got the rights to everything. So you yeah. can find... You'll find it, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but it goes through all the various types of L.A. that there is. There's, there's residential L.A., and there's the commercial L.A., and there's the, the highways, and there's this, and how it was used 
in yeah. different films and it shows like both the actual structures and the actual infrastructure and like how it was then used in the movie so like one of the longer pieces on the Bradbury building yeah. which is most famously in um, in Blade Runner but of course it's so different than how we see it in Blade Runner Blade Runner looks just so derelict and yeah. abandoned when in truth it's actually really polished yeah. and I think it's offices actually yeah. um, but uh, go I, back to your 70s coolest yeah. question yeah um, it's kind of weird because I almost think of like the New York versus LA divide a lot when I think of like both comedy and like how raw edged one side is versus the other one's trying to do something different and maybe a little pretentious but has maybe a bit more down to earth in other ways because okay. of where they came from uh, to summarize that but I think it plays into both movies as well where like the, when you watch a New York trying to be cool they're trying to show you like oh these are all the clubs we go to mm-hmm. it's not really like so house party driven it's like you're at your club or you've got like kind of the cool quiet little hipster home mm. whereas in LA it's like you don't really see them going kind of clubbing if you see them going down the strip in cars those are the people who are supposed to be the douchebags that you hate right like the entourage but like in LA it's like it's people's houses yeah and, and they might be living somewhat comfortably just kind of like three people ha- hanging out by themselves snorting coke yeah. or it could be just kind of a giant party where everybody's naked jumping into the pool but yeah. it's like in both cases it's almost like these people are more loose they might be insane but they're more comfortable with themselves and when you add kind of the 70s kind of feeling where you still kind of have the more kind of free sexual kind of less uptight and there's no cell phones yeah you know what i mean there's nobody's you know like everybody has to everybody's present you know actually i hadn't thought about it of the way that everybody's present because if you went to a party you were in that party and even if you were only on the couch sitting talking to one person yeah you you were there you know what? And I that even think... translates into the ice storm. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, and I think you can do it anywhere. You know what 70s. I think it is? Like I, I, I kind of think that when we look at movies, uh, especially out of the seventies, it was kind of one of the last eras of compromised morals. And yeah. I think there's a selfish part of ourselves that thinks, man, you know, how much easier would it be to live when you just didn't care? Yeah. You know, we don't get me wrong. I, I do not think that there's anything romantic about the damage that we did to ourselves, society, and our planet. In, in the early part in the mid part of the last century yeah. but at the same time those cars look so cool you know those big gas guzzling huge ass cars how much fun would they be to drive probably a lot yeah. or, you know what I'm saying like that kind of thing I spent like 10 minutes looking around in my parking lot yesterday in Ikea for my car because it looks like every other car <laughs> it's just that that kind of thing it would yeah. be, it, I, I think that's part of what it is is people just didn't give a shit and that's part of like the style right like you're looking at it it's such awful style because it seemed cool, because they didn't really give a crap. And I, I think that's, it was kind of the last bastion yeah. of not caring. Well, 80s, were, 80s today, were definitely the me decade, yeah. but it was a different, it was more greedy and, and even more ugly. And then yeah. once we, I think once we get to the 90s, we're much more socially aware. Yeah. But the thing is, we're almost at a part where now we're like, we're extremely socially aware. And, yeah, it's always, it's always gone the other way. There are times where, like, where they're, they're, it has maybe an overall good for society, especially for minorities. But there are other times where, like, you know, uh, the self-awareness is, like, oppressive. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you just want an escape from it. So when you see someone who doesn't have to answer emails, doesn't have to answer texts. Yeah. And whatever trade-offs come with that, it, it feels like it's a very grass is greener time where you can just let go of that for at least 90 minutes to, like, two hours. Mm-hmm. and uh, And be like, wow, like, because we're old enough that we both kind of grew up with dial 
phones. Well, you know, and somebody asked me the other day, they said, if you wanted to meet somebody, like if you were going to the mall and you wanted to meet somebody, how did you do it? And I just said, well, you said meet in this spot at this time. Yeah. And then what happened if they didn't show? It's like, well, you gave them time and if they didn't show, you bailed. Yeah. You, you know, you didn't hit where are you. You just, things just didn't happen. Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah. Um, and people were less likely to flake or something. Yeah, there's that too. Yeah. Because you just Society's like, always changing. Yeah. And I think, like, I'm old enough to sort of have, again, one toe dipped into that time period and know that, like, if this wasn't invented, we might still be living in some approximation of it. And the 70s style is very kind of both beautiful and gaudy. Yeah. But in the 80s, still had a toe dipped in that as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you can relate to it, you know, oh, yeah. like, uh, and it just... Um, so, so back to what actually happens within this movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, this movie is really, really led by the chemistry between Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling. Yeah. Um, Gosling, I think, I, I had an idea of his comedic ability and his comedic timing. Russell Crowe seems to be the one who's really surprising me because I don't think I've seen this side of him before. And he's not, he's not being goofy in this movie. Like, it's not like I think he's playing completely against character. He's just dialing some things about him down, dialing other things up. And the two of them work so damn well together. Russell Crowe is kind of in the um, Guy Ritchie zone in this movie. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Okay. Um, Like, you know, Guy Ritchie usually has, like, one American. Yeah. uh, Whether it's Dennis Farina. Yeah. Or or whoever, or Brad Pitt, or whatever, even if they're playing, like, a different... Right. He wants to have, like, one or two North American actors to bring that different flavor. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the kind of world that Crowe's living in, and you can very much picture him being in a Guy Ritchie movie. Oh, totally. Um... And it kind of plays to his strengths, and I mean, we're going to be talking about LA Confidential later, and uh, he's still kind of in a similar role, or he's kind of, you know, uh, very much a thug, mm-hmm. and uh, not in pure control of his own um, physicality and emotions and reactions, and mm-hmm. I think the only difference is that in this one, he's kind of almost like... He has so much respect for like the job, yeah. Which is why like he'll only leave someone alive because like I was like, oh yeah, you know, like I, I, you're doing, yeah, you're doing, yeah, you're doing, do. you're doing what's required. Now yeah. you're going beyond what's required. And now then, you have to pay for. Yeah, yeah. So um, that sort of uh, kind of dutiful, like he's he's like the hound dog, you know, like uh, he's got he's like this real schlub who just lives above a comedy store, but has like a weird sense of honor. It's also just really awesome to watch them playing off each other. Um, you know, I'm thinking about scenes where they meet up with Kim Basinger in yeah. her office, and they're, and, you know, they're they're listening to her talking about how half her day is spent on this huge Cadillac case, and the other half is spent on porn. Yeah. And Ryan Gosling's like, "Oh, really? Like, what do you watch? What kind of movies?" And he's like, "No, no, no. She doesn't watch them. She's against them." Oh, yeah. okay. You're, like, the, the, such a Paulo moment. <laughs> it is. Um, but things like that, and then you know, it leads to Gosling starts taking notes. He's like, "Okay, porn is bad." You know, like stuff like that. It's yeah. it's great to watch them playing together. Gosling, you know, he's kind of, of course, he's the "Hey Girl" meme, yeah. and it's really great to see him kind of embracing his schlubbier side, or just being in something where he's allowed to speak. Well, there's that, yeah, <laughs> where he's allowed to speak, but also yeah. like he's, he's he's really allowed to speak in a movie that I really love with him is. Um, Crazy Stupid Love. Oh, yeah. But in that movie, of course, he's the ideal, yeah. right? And, and he's the guy who's got the right line for absolutely everything, uh, including when he's still meant to be goofy, but he's a different kind of goofy. Yeah. Here, he really seems like... He really embodies the alcoholic, yeah. messed up, widowed, 
trying to keep it together father and it's a different side of him I don't think we've really no, we seen have. this with him before and, uh, and, he, and he works it yeah and I hope he just keeps taking more work like this like this and I don't mean necessarily keep playing cops or alcoholics or anything but I mean uh, do something where your character is like a bit more flawed I mean I think Brad Pitt is kind of a good example of someone who tried to branch out and do things that maybe weren't what people thought he was going to be back in the Legend of the Fall days. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think Gosling is more than capable, and he's done kind of, you know, oddball roles, whether it's Lars and the Real Girl or The Believer when he was young. Um, well, he's but, doing a musical next, so we'll see how that goes. And then after that, speaking of, you know, looking off and being stoic, he's, he did a Terrence Malick movie. So we may have to wait uh, a little yeah. bit to get the, the, full, the full thing, but... You know, a lot of those teams that we talked about earlier, it's about, like, the timing between them. And I think yeah. these guys really have the timing down. Um, what did you make of the role of, of Holly and how Rice played her? Because if you drop a precocious child yeah. in, it can really kind of throw things off. Yeah, she really works. Um, she's kind of got... Uh She's kind of got a look, Chloe Grace, Grace Moretz yeah. kind of uh, adult childness to her. Yeah. And uh, without that kind of excellent casting, it might not work um, because she's just adult enough that to know and kind of has enough agency to in what she's doing mm-hmm. that you kind of like are rooting for her. But at the same time, um, that one little thing about you don't have to kill him adds that one little bit of naivety. Yeah. Or like you appreciate that she isn't like a full-on psychopath you know what I mean like it actually helps helps her character mm-hmm. and adds a slight arc to a few other people's characters um, that you know she just wants them to be good people even if they're doing kind of a weird job that she also has an attraction to like uh, it's almost like she wants to be like the moral director of, of their agency you know what I mean like I think one of the things I dug about the use of her in this whole story is that nobody ever talked to her like she was a child like any time that she runs into um, shoot Amelia yeah any time that she runs into Amelia either of the two cops even some of like a lot of the bad guys they never talk to her like she's a kid yeah and she's 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 like she's supposed to be like 16 or 17 because she's driving yeah Um, which that was always jarring to see every time she was the driver um, which it took a while because I was like, wait, how old is she supposed to be? Thing is, it didn't even matter to me because I can just picture Ryan Gosling just telling. Yeah, telling here you drive. drive. Yeah, it's almost like The Simpsons. <laughs> just like, all right, Lisa, you can drive. Yeah, uh, and yeah, I think that works. She's not the precocious child in this thing. She she's also not. Um, she's like, Ryan Gosling's mom. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. and I mean, you know, she's basically in a weird way stepping in for the wife he lost. Yeah, and you can see that she gets. That that she like she's the one who goes over to the the lot and hangs out and wait you know and kind of maps out her bedroom and where it's going to be, and Gosling's the one who just can't even deal, so she's the one who's leading him. And then you know when Russell Crowe enters the fray, she can work with him. You know yeah. it's it's a weird it's a weird inclusion because yeah. ordinarily in this kind of movie you've either got like you know the hot girl working into it or like or a femme fatale working yeah. into it. You don't usually have somebody's older teenage daughter. Yeah, there's no weird scene where she's asked to ask, like, what's this mean? Mm-hmm. Um, you got to get the sense that she's, because of Gosling, that she's seen everything. Yeah. And she already knows how to sort of react in certain situations with when people are acting a certain way, that they she can use her youth to an advantage to trick them. And, yeah. And, uh, Is, uh... 
Is there a flaw to this movie? Because I, like, I feel like we've been tongue-bathing it, and I, I can't... The only flaw I can come up with is once you leave it, you leave it. Like, yeah. it's cool, and it's yeah. fun, and it's awesome. Well, which would make... There's, like, one scene later where, like, Kim Basinger's doing kind of a rant about uh, cars in America. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. And she's, like, looking right to screen, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, yeah. I found that was maybe a little much. Okay. And I don't know... I still don't really even understand what that was... Oh, as as Detroit goes, so goes America, and it's kind of, and like and meanwhile we're in a <laughs> yeah. yeah, and we're in a place where Detroit is bankrupt. So make your own conclusion. Yeah, yeah, that was a little on the nose, and and sorry that that may seem like a spoiler, but it's really not. Yeah. Any other faults or nitpicks I would make are almost more like the first watch nitpick thing we we're talking about, where you're sort of really almost like preventing yourself from laughing, um, where it's almost like uh, if if you're kind of in a zone where you're more concerned with following a story than letting yourself loose enough to laugh at the yeah. little, little things uh, it means that um, you might feel that the script is um, better than the performance sure. or, or, or yeah. you might be taken aback like okay like if you're heady enough you might be like uh, alright I didn't laugh at that why didn't I laugh at that oh it's because this actor would have done this better or um, or it was off by a half second in the reading yeah. or you know like but uh but I think all that stuff is going to carry out in the rewatches, so I wouldn't... I think so, it. too. Like, uh, you know, I think about how on paper a scene like the the guys coming down from the penthouse of the building, how that would read on paper. You know, like, Marsh and Healy look out of the elevator, they see one guy choking, they look to their right, they hear gunshots, they get back in the elevator, they see a guy falling. You read that <laughs> on the page, yeah, and it, it doesn't really line yeah. the timing of it both like in terms of the camera moves and in terms of how they move yeah. and how they very play off it's a gorgeous scene and yeah. I think that that's that you know that's yeah. where you gotta invest but if you don't let yourself go that's the other thing is that you can take a scene like that as well and you can very much picture that scene like you can picture that scene in a Coen Brothers movie mm-hmm. and it would be just as funny but the timing of it would be very different, different. Yeah. so so different yeah and uh, it just kind of it's, it's very fun to see something that works when you realize that like, there's more than one way to tell the same joke. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it's like the aristocrats. Yeah. Well, we end our reviews here on the on the matinee cast with a souvenir, something tangible or intangible that you would take and keep from this movie if you could. Mm-hmm. Corey Pierce, what is your souvenir from the nice guys? Oh, jeez. It's a hard one because this, this, this is, got a lot of stuff to take away. Um, I don't, I don't like, what I'm going to have to say is, I'm going to have to guard it under spoiler terms. Okay. There's a, there's a character that leaves the film. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't, think that would happen okay especially because after that happens it makes you you could you could see the film either going like either wrapping up and making a sort of kind of a dark statement on you know um you know things don't you know work out despite your plans uh or or you could see it going where it actually kind of does go Mm -hmm. and i don't normally kind of expect to see kind of like a a late film decision like that and I just appreciated how kind of, like, it's that one mo- moment that really does feel like this film is treating you like an adult. Okay. You know, it can, ex- like, it it knows that maybe one or two people might think that the movie just dies right there because yeah. the, uh, because that was supposed to be, like, a goal of the film. Yeah. Whereas it just becomes kind of another sort of... Uh, breadcrumb on the path. Breadcrumb yeah, on the path. yeah. And, okay. Uh, and there's just not enough movies that are willing to take that chance with the audience right um and i think this one does it and it pays off to the benefit of the story right so um and i i'm a big fan of the person who plays that character from, okay uh, a different uh entity thing, entity i think i know who you're talking about yeah. and actually i gotta i gotta 
if it, if it's the the project that I'm thinking of, it's one that I actually do have to start watching myself. Yeah. Um, my souvenir is a little bit more tangible. My souvenir is don't say end stuff. Oh yeah, um, because <laughs> that, yeah, that's going to be the quotable thing of yeah, the yeah. whole thing. So it's to fill people in in case they haven't seen this movie. Um, that's going to be the meme one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. March has a bit of a. Um, pet peeve of people saying and stuff so for instance you do a podcast where you talk about movies and stuff leave out the end stuff it's understood <laughs> i i don't think i actually say that but i will now forever be aware of yeah. any time i ever say that kind of thing and i will not be saying and stuff or you're just gonna it's gonna be things like a half second later you're just punching yourself in the face yeah yeah like the, like the day that i i absolutely like could not forgive myself for using literally wrong. Yeah. This will be another one of those. I, that, that word for me is like, if I say actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's going to be that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So, on the Matt AKS, we rate movies on a scale of one to four stars. Corey Pierce, what do you give Shane Black's The Nice Guys? Uh, I'm giving them the full four banger. Nice. And, um, like, I, I think we were talking before the show that this is 2016 to me. If, if it carries forward the same way that it has, like this year, this will be the probably the best year for movies of the decade it really um, to me seems like this is a year where there are a lot of options beyond the franchises and yeah. you just need to look you like you seriously just look at what's playing in theater three instead of theaters one or two nine times out of ten it's gonna be a great movie hey listen maybe we're wrong maybe you saw the nice guys and absolutely hated it uh let me know i'd love to know what people dig, think about this movie ryan at the matinee.ca twitter facebook all the usual avenues what did you think of shane black's the nice guys we're gonna take a quick break and come back right over this so come on back we will flip the record over to the other side Corey's choice to marry up with the nice guys was at first kind of an unorthodox choice. Uh, he went with a setting connection, um, but as we, as I rewatched it yesterday morning, it actually has a lot more in common than one might think at first blush. Corey went back to 1997 to one of the very best films that year, and in what was a very good year for film, um, and went with Curtis Hansen's *L.A. Confidential*. The neo-noir story starring Kevin Spacey, Russell Crowe, Guy Pearce, uh, and Kim Basinger, and a whole host of others. Um, what was your, your first thought when you came up with L.A. Confidential as a, as a companion piece to The Nice Guys? Well, it was almost kind of going and like, making a blind guess because I hadn't seen The Nice Guys yet. Yeah, I should, I should um, kind of apologize for that. No, I made you I, choose I, another side but before either one of us had seen the movie. When you take our two choices and then maybe add a few extra other ones you really kind of get what the nice guys is doing i think mm -hmm. we just kind of lucked it like we we called it we prophesized yeah um la confidential is uh first of all like curtis hansen was a guy that i thought was gonna be a player yeah and wonder boys was very good and eight miles very good and it just kind of petered out from there and even like the river wild i think is a pretty good thriller but um uh he very much has uh, a very legit kind of a feel to everything where it's like he's got this very good balance of telling like an intricate plot while also um, spinning a lot of plates which is a lot of characters whose like loyalties you're kind of shifting around to because they're all got their own kind of self-interest and they all have to be at odds with each other and then they have to work with each other at different points mm -hmm. so you see different kind of team-ups to get certain things done and in the end you're kind of almost left to sort of 
root with the per- for the person that you don't want to. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of a bold, smart choice. I mean, they could have very easily let that person become like an antagonist fighting an antagonist. But if anything, like, um, it turns around the other way and, and then kind of stabs you a little bit at the very, very end. Yeah. Um, in a very kind of um, forget it is Chinatown kind of way. Um, and I saw this back. I didn't see it immediately when it came out. I think no, I saw it on, like VHS back in like ninety nine two thousand, but it was very much one of those like big deal movies for me into sort of becoming kind of a cinephile, like because there's so much kind of knowledge and stuff there that like he Curtis Hansen has proven himself to not be a master filmmaker, but he's but he definitely made something that can kind of prove to be like an education uh, for for kind of the language of filmmaking to be both kind of cinematic. Uh, fully kind of form something with character uh, and have a complete like meal of a story that actually has some actual kind of meaning behind it when it comes to telling something about uh, ambition yeah, and I'd well, say like most of the connections that kind of have between the nice guys are either somewhat stylistically and a lot of kind of superficial little things well it's it's funny because on the one hand again it's kind of like the nice guys in that most of it will just evaporate the second you leave the theater it's not going to leave you carrying any themes or any ideas as you go forward just because it's also self-contained in this nice neat little box but at the same time while you're in that box you are completely locked in um the craziest thing that i think of that you kind of stumbled onto when choosing this movie is it's kind of the nice guys 20 years prior or tw- uh, yeah 25 years prior yeah. thereabouts um, because first of all, this is in an era when Hollywood is kind of going full bore, right? Like Hollywood, the, the studio system is going full tilt. There, we, there's, there's cut up movie stars. movie stars all over the place. There's movie premieres happening in the background of this movie. Gossip rags. Gossip rags. And then we flip forward to the to the late seventies, and like the damn Hollywood sign is in shambles, and that's actually the first shot of the movie is pushing forward yeah. over the Hollywood sign, and you can see it from behind how it's all like busted up and yeah. broken, and just Amelia's out of neglect. Kind of plot is very kind of hush hush. Yeah, that kind of thing, and even you know, it's feasible that mm. Bud Court is Jackson Healy twenty years prior. Right, that this is you know he just flamed out of the force. He's doing his own thing now. He's private investigating and he's living above a comedy club just because, you know he, he he's got that minimalist personality that doesn't need anything else because the job uh, is the yeah. whole the job yeah. is everything. So that's that's the thing in terms of a Russell Crowe Hollywood cop double feature. This is bloody genius. If I don't mind, <laughs> well done. Um, is it a plus or minus in this kind of movie when you approach it knowing that you can't trust every character? Um, I think it's a plus. Okay. If anything, it just it's it's one of those very little things that just sort of keeps you kind of on guard because I think there's a natural sort of tendency when you're walking into something that you know is a mystery mm-hmm. that if you have a lot of characters, you want to be kind of participate in the guessing game. Sure. And you actually don't want to be right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think LA Confidential, when it has its moment where it kind of does the turn, um. It uh, it does it 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 does it right because it's an actor that you've generally trust yeah um, but is completely believable in their own role and it comes to down to just casting the right person and you're like wow you know you did a very very made a very very wise choice right there you know like uh, um, but when I think of LA Confidential like as well I, I think of a lot of superficial little storytelling things that like what it pop up in. Uh, 
the nice guys as well that uh, almost like they're both part of like the the genre but they irritate me just a little bit is that okay in both movies Russell Crowe pops uh, ha- uh, stumbles upon a corpse and pulls out a uh, a wallet yeah that has the identity okay which can help push the plot forward yeah and in both cases it's so very very convenient <laughs> it's, uh, yeah that's I hadn't really thought about it that way but it is one of those things it's like you know yeah the the, the this is somebody who, in, in LA Confidential, this is somebody who was left for dead and stashed somewhere where they wouldn't be found, yeah. and yet their wallet is there. Mm-hmm. You know, it, on the one hand, it's kind of a nitpick, but on the other hand, it's, it's like, like yeah. Yeah, if you went to all this trouble, you yeah. know, like, this come is something on. that you would have done yeah, as seriously. well. Um, you know, I this is a movie I always love. This kind of gets back to me saying how what what we dug about the '70s in terms of it was the last time where nobody cared. In a movie like this, I love the compromise morals, which is weird because yeah. I'm like such an upstanding person that maybe <laughs> it's just like a moment of escapism of what would I do if I was prone to, uh, you know, taking bribes or prone to acting on my own self interest instead of thinking about the greater good, and it's that, that I think that's what I love about noir in yeah. general. Situational morality, is yeah, that, that's that's the whole driving force between like between everything. It's just like. It's not just what you would do, but you're in an institution where everybody else is doing it. Yeah. And it's almost like uh, if you're not being political with the people you're working with, you're you're hurting your own process. Well, but you're also if you if you play along, you're hurting your own soul. Well, that's the Ed Exley end of this, right? Like yeah. the guy Pierce, kind of one of his one of his career making performances. Like I'd say it was this and uh, Memento. And, well, and Memento, and before those, we also have um, Priscilla. Oh right, right that right, we right, that we right, always right, kind of forget right, about. Right. They all kind of happen together in a clump, yeah. um, and he's the guy who is trying to go against the corrupt system. Like he's the one that refuses the ten dollar bribe <laughs> at the beginning. Which even you know I know it's nineteen fifties money and ten bucks is go went a lot further, but he he refuses a ten dollar bribe. You know that's just handed to him, not even in exchange for anything, but just here. You're the night watchman on yeah. tonight. Here's your ten bucks. Yeah. That kind of thing of he's trying to be the upstanding guy, but at the same time he's throwing off the whole ecosystem around him and making things so much harder for himself. Yeah, that's what I always when I watch a movie like this, I'm like, how long can I hang on to being, yeah, the moral guy, right? Yeah, and anytime he's trying to be immoral, it's almost like a calculated like risk like roll the dice like he wants like you want to tear down like everything you just build up here i'm like you're like absolutely but you realize that he's kind of taking a risk that he can sort of come up the other end where he's also appearing to compromise his morals but he's doing it both for kind of selfish ambition needs yeah but it's also so he can keep, keep doing the job that he wants to do by his own rules yeah so he's kind of having his cake and eating it too which you don't normally kind of get at the end of uh a noir film. No, no, you don't. This is this is a film with very few winners, but he's very much one of them. Yeah. Um, did you find now, um, coming to it later on, that an appreciation of classic movies has upped the ante on on what's in this movie? Because when I like, I, I gotta be honest, when I watched this movie the first time in like '98, I did not know who Lana Turner was. I don't think I knew who Rita Hayworth was, um, and you know, kind of what some of these institutions and locations meant in the lore of of classic Hollywood. Um, Now that we're basically 20 years down the road and you and I have both watched a whole lot of older movies to kind of fill in some blanks, does it make, does it up the the appreciation on this or is it just Um, one more nice thing? 
It's just one more nice thing. Okay. I mean, it does mean something to me that Kim Basinger really does look like her. Yeah. But uh, uh, to me, it's more just like uh, I kind of like the incorporation of real history and sort of adapting it to their own cause. And like I don't stuff, know if like anyone... using Mickey Cohen, who was an actual gangster, that kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if I could actually picture that somebody back then cut up well, I mean, it's, it's kind of one of those things where, you know, like, not to go too far down a really weird tangent, but look at how there's now an industry of parody porn movies, right? Yeah, where, where but they there's do, also that woman who wants to look exactly like Barbie. Which, that, that's, that's, its own, <laughs> that, that, that's its own animal, but I mean, yeah. when it comes to titillation, there's something to be said for impersonation, because yeah. the, the customer base has it in their head of, oh, wow, I'm actually doing with fill in the blank like yeah. you know i'm sure in her men day, are visually minded and they yeah and they, and they want better than their own head yeah of... like i mean <laughs> you know when, when she was more of a sex symbol not that she's still not but when she was more of a sex symbol i'm sure that there was either an actress or a stripper or some sort of erotic performer who was modeling herself after kim basinger yeah right when like nine and a half weeks was a big thing there was somebody out there who was cutting their hair and styling their hair and dressing to look like her mm-hmm follow it on down the line yeah it's it's that, that you don't even is, need to be a sex symbol i mean if you're Jennifer no Anst- aniston you've had everybody with the with, with your own haircut. haircut yeah it's you know i i dug it a little bit like as i said like seeing stuff now like sullivan travels and seeing stuff like gilda and knowing who these ones were and i even think i'd have to double check it with her but um my friend mariah gates who lived down in california until very recently had a campaign to kind of preserve um, Lana Turner's booth at the restaurant that she no- normally went to. Okay. And I actually think that it's the booth that they filmed in. I could be wrong on that. I got to double check that with her. But it's little things like that that there that are these little cookies yeah, yeah. within it. I think kind of stoke my appreciation of this movie, yeah. which I've already watched it two times this year. So <laughs> go figure. Um, well, there we go. That's LA Confidential. Which if you've never seen it, first of all, you're in for awesome times. But second of all, see it after the Nice Guys because it yeah. really works quite nicely. And I'm very much like. I actually am a Titanic fan, but I still am debating on, like, this maybe shouldn't have beat Titanic. Like, if it was a meritocracy, oh, yeah. I understand that Titanic is more important. They're, it's, I even like, think they're, Titanic, they're just, they're you know, so different, yeah. right? It's it's so hard to choose one over the other just because both of them have so many things going for them, but they're just such different movies that it's really hard to choose mm-hmm. between one and one A. Um, well, we're going to take one last break and uh, close out the show with another flip of the record to play another side come on back right after this we'll talk about one more movie jingle bell jingle bell jingle bell rock jingle bells chime in jingle bell time snowing and blowing a bushel of fun now the jingle hop and jingle we're back he's Corey. i'm ryan we're talking L.A. movies, noir movies, buddy cop movies on Matinee Cast 158. And my choice for the other side would seem a little bit obvious, and it did come at Corey's suggestion, but I couldn't resist because <laughs> I'd actually never seen it. Yeah, I know. I went back to 1987, another Shane Black movie, another buddy cop movie. I watched the first Lethal Weapon for the very first time. And I should uh, cop to. I've actually seen Lethal Weapon 3 and Lethal Weapon 4, but I've never seen the first one, never seen the second one, and there's a lot of there's a lot of tropes in it. It's kind of it's one of the 
defining films of the genre. It's gone on to just every movie kind of has to follow a lot of these beats. And let's just kind of start with the obvious question. Is it really weird that I had never seen this movie? Um, not insanely weird, okay. but I, I never saw it until like 2010. Okay. And I think it was more of a Mel Gibson thing. Sure, okay. Um, but I mean, I went through years and years of Gibson before Gibson got weird, right? Um, like, to me, Gibson was was getting weird around like the Passion of the Christ okay. days. Yeah, yeah. And so that's only a few years after I graduated college. Okay. So it was kind of easy to kick the can down the road. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, Lethal Weapon to me is like seeing, I, I, I feel like I saw it too late. Sure. I mean, I still like it a lot. Yeah. But I don't, um, I think if I grew up with it or saw it on v- in the VHS days, it would be a lot closer to my heart. Um, I mean, you can definitely see Shane Black's writing. Oh, yeah. And I mean, like the very start of the film <laughs> with the woman jumping to her doom is pretty much like you watch that and you watch Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and you watch Nice Guys. It's all just well, right there. That right? was actually going to be my next question. So maybe we'll jump right ahead to that. Is that is Nice Guys different enough? From this, like, or that—that—that's going to be my thing. Is anybody who is a fan of Lethal Weapon, yeah, will go into this and they'll know a lot of the tropes. They're not going to know everything because I feel like Nice Guys picks up enough steam in the last act yeah. to really differentiate itself. But everything from the, you know, there's there's a Christmas background, although in Nice Guys it doesn't show up until much later. The buddy cops, yeah. the, the the this plot getting much more complicated. Yeah. Is it is it different enough? Because it seems see like that. there's a lot of similarities yeah, I, between the two. I can see two. that, but it's more almost like a case of like refinement. It's like, hey, do you like uh, this Radiohead album versus this album where they kind of perfected more, where they were, you know, it's like it's more like that when I right. think when it comes to certain directors who have like a voice. And I think maybe the same thing could be said about you know Wes Anderson, where you can pick certain things that he's always done from the beginning, but you might prefer one of his later ones just because you prefer what he's doing now stylistically or with that specific cast you know it's it's um it's almost kind of like uh there's always going to be certain artists who are just kind of you know building a better version of, of themselves well, every single time one of them that um, one of the differences between the two movies might be that this is it's uh, not shane black directing. well i was gonna say this is richard donner yeah. directing shane black versus later on he does his own thing and mm-hmm. while i feel like there are a lot of directors who writers and directors who can actually do with that need to start working in a team. Like there's yeah. a there's a lot of them out there who, when they do everything themselves, I kind of feel like they get too lost in themselves. Cameron Crowe is going yeah. through that a lot right now. I really feel like he needs to either write something for somebody else or direct somebody else's stuff, just because he's getting just too lost in his own world. Yeah. Um, versus Shane Black has kind of shown a maturity in directing a lot more of his own stuff with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and and this. Whereas in Lethal Weapon, he kind of takes his thing hands it over to Richard Donner, and then Richard Donner does his Richard Donner thing. Yeah, I think... And I like a lot of Richard Donner movies. People actually... I feel like he's a name that a lot of people now might not recognize. He's yeah. one of those ones that kind of didn't quite make it past the turn of the millennium, mm-hmm. where he is a... In case people don't know, he's the director who did Superman, the Lethal Goonies. Weapon movies, Goonies is Scrooge. one of his, Scrooge is one of his, There's uh, Maverick is another yeah. one of his... Yeah. Um, and and is a really talented director, top to bottom. But just in the in the new century, has not quite had as many prominent projects. Um, but I, th- I think he's just not dark enough to. There's that. There's, he he doesn't have necessarily a, a mischievous side that 
Shane Black does. And Shane Black's sense of mischief is a bit more... Uh, it's not as audacious or provocative. It's it's more kind of it's. I wouldn't even say cheeky. It's just more uh, like smarter. It's it's an it's an intellectual mischief. Yeah, it's possible that he might also just be semi-retired or something because he hasn't done a movie in ten years now. Sixteen Blocks was his last movie, and that was two thousand and six. Yeah. So he might have just said, "I'm I'm finished." Yeah. Um, and you know, listen, if that was his career. He's done just fine. He's yeah. got plenty of money. I'm sure he, he'll be crying himself to sleep. I think with the, with Lethal Weapon, is it's not just Shane Black. That's Shane Black that's been trying to sort of refine and make a better version. It's everybody else too. Yeah. So if you've only seen this movie now, you've probably seen a lot of other buddy cop movies. Yeah. That have taken cues from this. Yeah. That you might prefer because it it says like, okay, we're gonna do this plus. Well, that was what, when I was watching this last night, Lindsay was asking me um, a question that I've had to ask myself and that other people have asked me when they're doing the Blind Spot series is when you see the original of a lot of these cliches, does it strike you as, does it strike you as cliche and formula or does it feel kind of neat to see the the origin of the species? Yeah, it it, sometimes it it works and sometimes it doesn't. I mean, like... If you're a person like me, when you're growing up The Simpsons and you become 2023 20, and you watch X movie and you see the reference and like, oh my god, I love this movie now because right. I understand the reference. Yeah. But if you're, you know, 35 and then for the first time you hear, I'm too old for this shit. Yeah. I don't know if it works or not. <laughs> like, it, it did. In a lot of ways it did. Like, like seeing how they work together. I, I actually like that they weren't so at odds uh, that was the kind of thing i expected them to be like the absolute worst pairing right strangely considering it's 1987 there's no racism that enters into this no. i totally expected there has to be a black white thing yeah. that comes into this equation and it really didn't yeah. so considering it was the 80s that, yeah. that's actually kind of refreshing yeah. it's not die hard three no no it's yeah. not die hard three which <laughs> was well which was after this that's the yeah. thing is right like that was that was well after this, and that makes the racism between the two its bread and butter. Um, versus because they established like from the very beginning that you know this guy is a family man, and he's you know like he's not defined. This, this is not at all defined at all by being a black white parent. Yeah, it is entirely like kind of like a aging family man versus kind of a. Uh, kind of an eccentric person who uh, who's also widowed. There's a, there's the connection. Re- like there's the recently connection. widows, yeah. widowed, who uh, and who becomes you know the the lethal weapon, live wire. That and so they've got to uh, find a way to coexist and kind of tap into what each other's like thinking. And it, it does, it's not a matter of thinking around cultural or racial lines. It's entirely a matter of lifestyle. Yeah, like, lifestyle can be, you know, I don't think I think lifestyle can be colorblind, and. and most of the time if, if you've got the right amount of money <laughs> yeah it's like it was a cool watch i think it holds up pretty well the weird thing is that it's in a lot of ways it's uglier than the nice guys which is strange because it's set it's also the 80s it's like yeah People like expected it, less well i think like 80s films have a really really ugly aesthetic yeah. to them on the whole 70s films too we kind of went through this dip in the 70s and 80s where film the look of film took a really big hit for some strange reason I don't know if it's film stock or lenses or lighting or what or just the style of the times even like the big directors like Scorsese were 
Yeah, it's yeah, it's 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 yeah. unilateral. It's across the board. It's weird because now we get it where a modern film set in the eighties looks better than a film in the eighties. Like yeah. you mentioned, everybody wants some earlier on. That's that nineteen eighty though. It's, I know, it's but basically seventy. I know, but I mean, like that. That's the thing. Is like that yeah. that movie looks so much better than most of the movies made from the times. The Nice Guys looks better than almost any movie from nineteen seventy seven mm-hmm. because it's grime filtered through the lens of handsomeness. Yeah. You know? So that was that was the biggest thing of watching Lethal Weapon is I was like, this film is ugly as shit. Yeah. You know? And yeah. I know it's just a comedy, but still. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that, that's why it relies very, very heavily on the kind of comedic banter. Oh, yeah. And uh, even though there's a lot of the action, I'm not, I think the action's pretty standard. It's uh, cool. Yeah. It's it's fine. You're, you're right. It, it's that, it's seeing the origin of the pairing. And I actually yeah. think they, that was a pairing that had a long way to go like I, you know it's weird that this is a franchise that went to four movies and they're still talking about number five Jesus um, it went to, they're really too old for this shit yeah um, it went pretty deep down the well but every time especially because I saw three and four they they kept you know there was life in the pairing yeah you know if, if this is a movie of just watching Riggs and Murtaugh hanging out then they, they got a lot of hanging out out of this series. Which, by the way, a little side tangent, if you're ever in Toronto and you go to Burger's Priest, get yourself the Riggs of Murtaugh milkshake. It's chocolate and vanilla. It's world. <laughs> it's great. It's delicious. Um, earlier on, you mentioned Mel. Is it, like, is it hard to watch anything with Mel now, knowing what we know about Mel? Or, or are we close uh, to coming out of the tunnel? Or yeah, I, I'm out of the tunnel. I mean... It's not that like anything gets forgiven. It's not like oh he's learned his lessons by him a prison no. sort yeah. of thing. But it's um, when everything comes around back to everything like involving Woody Allen or Polanski and stuff like that. I mean, uh, in Woody Allen's case, like we're all kind of raising hell over something that we have to sort of you know you like a complete like believe the person making the accusation or you know it's up in the air. Let the well we don't know anything. Let's give the benefit of the doubt. Blah 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 blah. And meanwhile, there's stuff that we know that, like, Dr. Dre did. Yeah. And people are still buying his albums. And his headphones. His headphones without anyone really kind of making too much bluster about it. Um, See, and I, I'm not saying that, that Mel Gibson is a victim of selective outrage. No. But I'm just saying that people, if people want to enjoy something, they will overlook it. See, here's the, the thing, though. If not immediately, eventually. Yeah, I'm not like I'm not disagreeing because that is very valid. I think the thing for me is that when it comes to an actor, because an actor is kind of in the middle ground between an athlete and a writer, director, creating artist. Okay, yeah. so so stay with me. Um, if an athlete does something wrong, yeah. I have no mercy for them and I have no sympathy for them because you're paid absurd amounts of money to play a child's game. Yeah. If an artist who is a painter, a dancer, a musician does something wrong, I can separate the work from the person. Yeah. Right? I can say that they're an awful person, but look at what they have left this world. An actor is kind of in the middle of that because an actor... It's a facilitator of someone's art. It's a facilitator of somebody's art. You must admit you, in part, are being paid because you are pretty. Yeah. You know, there are lots of actors who are immensely talented who are not conventionally pretty. Yeah. Right? Male, male, female alike. Um, But Mel Gibson's also a director, though, too. He is, but most of what he's famous for is not his direction. He came to his direction much later in life. And that is the thing, is Mel for the most part of his career, was paid for being handsome. Mm-hmm. So, 
you're handsome and you're funny, but that doesn't completely allow me to overlook the fact that you're yeah. a raging racist. Yeah. And that that is the hardest part of going back. Like, well, I tr- you know, it, yeah. I think it's a matter of he's a, he is a disappointing bad person, but at the same time, he didn't. He doesn't seem like he's actively hurt anybody or actively discriminated against anybody. Well, um, and, and and like stuff. Sometimes that's there's worse. also weird things that are like like his friendship with Jodie Foster. You know, like these are still like weird people. Like even people that seem like you, you look at Mel Gibson and you see what he looks like and you think like he's just going to be kind of a normal actor. And so when he's a racist, you kind of think of him more kind of like a typical white male misogynist well, I, racist kind of thing part of me wonders if those but actors who I think like, he's a weird eccentric person I'm maybe, not trying to apologize to him no, but I'm just but trying to sort of like, say like, I, I kind of wonder if those are the people who have formed a relationship with him and they just kind of look the other way the way that you look the other way with your drunk uncle yeah, you, you know it's like yeah okay let's just let's just do this because he's done all these other things yeah. but that's the thing is anybody going into his movies now is going to have that playing in the back of their brain especially if it's somebody coming to Lethal Weapon now and they don't have those years and years of normal Mel Gibson to kind of fill in that that's the thing is well, I can remember when like, he was when we didn't know this about him it's yeah. easier to watch Lethal Weapon and earlier Mel Gibson stuff because it's like almost like it's the before time he might have had the same opinions but until you can sort of tell yourself that this is something that just happened to him eventually. Yeah. It's like the same way you can think of people who have bad opinions like John Voight or Kelsey Grammer or, or you know what I mean, or Hulk Hogan. Yeah, um, they, they used to, you know, <laughs> things might have been a little bit better when there was a bit of mystery. Like, that, that's the thing about L.A. Confidential is there were all these gossip rags and all these, all these you know, things talking about everything. Yeah. But there was also still so much mystery yeah. around stars at the time. Like, you know. Rock Hudson, when they die, when he died, they found out he was gay, and that just like shot the hell out of everybody. Liberace, yeah. <laughs> what, what the hell were yeah, we thinking? Yeah. You know, so that yeah. I think that's the thing is that we're we're now in an age where mystery is completely gone. Yeah. And and even uh, just being like those, a mansplainer, I, like Matt yeah. Damon. Yeah, just... yeah. You know, like I, I say this I say this every once in a while, but it's kind of one of those things that I'd like somebody who has who's younger who has no past with him to, to watch and tell me like yeah. you know can can you watch a Mel Gibson movie and not have that in the back of your brain versus somebody who has memories from before he was crazy yeah um, so uh, you know, I, just think I still enjoy that, Lethal Weapon yeah. for sure if you do that too much you kind of either are setting yourself up to be a hypocrite that you have to make peace with yeah or, or it's just you just take the fun out of everything yeah. yeah yeah or you just don't get to enjoy anything yeah else. Well, there we go. Lethal Weapon, LA Confidential, and for the love of God, the nice guys. Watch these movies. Enjoy yourself. It's a great little trio of movies that work well together. And that is episode 158 of the Matinee Cast. Come on back on Monday, June 5th for episode 159. It's my birthday episode, so we'll be talking about one of my favorites. Not going to tell you which, but uh, it shouldn't be too hard to guess. Corey is at row3.com and on the soundtrack of your life. Uh, you mentioned the Purple Rain episode coming up sometime soon. Do you have any other episodes that you're planning that people can hopefully look forward to? Um, I'm not exactly fully booked down the line. Okay. Um, I have an, an idea on a 1990 children's action film that someone might be taking. Gotcha. Uh, and I want to... Uh, there's a few people who I don't know but are kind of local like comedians or personalities that I just want to invite on the show and just 
just blind and see what nice. happens. Yeah. Okay, well, looking forward to it. And if people want to find, if people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me at Corey Pierce Art. Uh, the soundtrack of your life uh, podcast has its own feed at This Is Your OST. If you only want to know when that comes out, and none of my own daily rants <laughs> against Donald months. Trump. Oh, uh, so we, um, we need to get to election night fast is yeah. all I'm saying this, whole, this, this next few months is not going to be pretty on yeah, I'm kind of I, 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 like a, my vacation is not just a vacation it's going to be a vacation from yes. that's probably good how insane that's, pro- that's probably really, really smart yeah. my site of course is thematinee.ca for more audio content you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting you can also find them on Pocket Cast Stitcher Radio Blueberry Apple's podcast app and the iTunes store. Everything gives you handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. Feedback on the nice guys, LA Confidential, or Lethal Web can be left in the comment section of the blog. Email to Ryan at the matinee.ca, Twitter, where I'm matinee underscore CA, or Facebook.com slash dark matinee. Any final thoughts, buddy? Uh, keep fitting that fun. <laughs> for Corey Pierce, I'm Ryan McNeil. We'll see you at the matinee. The matinee.